This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Young Turks, Truth Dig Radio, The Onion Radio News, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Colbert Report, and comedian Lee Camp with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The David Pakman Show. Here's a civil liberty story I didn't know anything about, and I try to follow this stuff. Melissa Del Bosque of the Texas Observer reports that the FBI has been pushing its Secure Communities program not so much to make us more secure, but to try out some of its new and most intrusive technology. The Secure Communities program requires local law enforcement to run fingerprint checks through the FBI and Homeland Security on everyone they arrest, no matter how minor the offense. But the FBI isn't content with mere fingerprints anymore. It wants your eyeballs and then some. The program is promoted as a way to determine U.S. citizenship status after someone's arrested, the Texas Observer noted, but it's also a key part of a little-known FBI project called the Next Generation Identification Project, designed to accumulate biometric information on both citizens and non-citizens. This Next Generation Identification Project will expand the FBI's existing fingerprint database to add iris scans, palm prints, and facial recognition, the story says. With this new project, the FBI is becoming bigger brother. And as one critic pointed out, it's a backdoor route to a national ID to be carried not in a wallet, but within the body itself. So you can kiss your privacy rights and your presumption of innocence. Goodbye. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Hey, left all this garbage on the steps of Congress. I'm not garbage. I'm an amendment to be, yes, an amendment to be. And I'm hoping that they'll ratify me. There's a lot of flag burners who have got too much freedom. I want to make it legal for policemen to beat them, because there's limits to our liberties. Catching on. What the hell is this? It's one of those campy 70s throwbacks that appeals to Generation Xers. We need another Vietnam to thin out their ranks a little. What if people say you're not good enough to be in the Constitution? Then I'll crush all opposition to me, and I'll make Ted Kennedy pay. If he fights back, I'll say that he's gay. Good news, Amendment. They ratified you. You're in the U.S. Constitution. Oh, yeah. Doors open, boys. (laughs) 20-year-old man in Essex has been um, arrested, and he is facing criminal charges for using BlackBerry Messenger to plan a massive water fight. Oh, how dare he? A water fight? No. Have they no shame? Are they going to be using water pistols? Oh, look at this. Dangerous hooligans. These are the hooligans I've been hearing about in the UK. 
No, this is crazy. And of course, you know, the riots in London have caused authorities there to overreact to everything and blow everything out of proportion. For instance, there are two men in, um, in the UK that are going to serve a four-year prison sentence because they created a Facebook page that um, authorities believed was inciting violence, right? So they were, it was a Facebook page telling people where they can meet and protest or whatever. And um, authorities saw it, but the following day, the following morning, the guy took down the Facebook page and nothing happened. That Facebook page resulted in no violence, no problems whatsoever. Doesn't matter. Authorities arrested them and they will serve a four-year prison sentence as a result of that. Look, uh, the serious part of this, the goofy part is that they're trying to break up a water fight, right? The serious part of this is people haven't even done anything. They didn't even do the water fight, right? This is like arrest. This is, these are like pre-crimes. This is like arresting people for uh, having the wrong thoughts or the wrong intentions. But you've got to actually take a step towards it. I mean, you can really stretch the law and say the conspiracy has already begun. You took your first step towards that action by posting it online, etc. But really, I mean, in this case, they're uh, arresting them for the water fight on, quote, encouraging or assisting in the commission of an offense, according to the 2007 Serious Crime Act. That's so stupid. I mean, but that, it makes a mockery of the whole thing. It's called the Serious Crime Act, and you're arrested based uh, somebody on starting a water fight. What's next? Our pillow fight's going to be illegal? Well, the consequences of this are actually much more serious than that, because what this is really doing is intimidating and deterring people from you know, mobilizing others to protest something that they don't agree with, okay? It's, it's a form of intimidation. Authorities are now, you know, looking through your Facebook accounts. They're looking through your Twitter. If you try to mobilize people and protest something, all of a sudden you have, you know, BART in um, the Bay Area in California uh, shutting down cell phone services so you can't call your friends and you can't can't protest. Basically, this is a way to discourage people from getting together and protesting something. In, in essence, the government is this. He's clamming in your windows. He's snatching your people up. Okay, you can't have it, okay? Now, the thing is, to give you a sense of how bad this uh, action in, in England is, Iran totally agrees. In Tehran, Iran, this month, a uh, water fight attended by thousands of young Iranians, which, by the way, you got to really give it to the Iranians. I know. For <laughs> thousands of people in a water fight. That sounds awesome. I know. Okay, they're having a good time. It's hot in Tehran, right? And uh, they were arrested by the morality p uh, police, and uh, a series of arrests ensued to make sure that no one in Iran actually have a good time. And if you're having a good time, everything will be fine. Yeah, if you're having a good time, everything will be fine. Some preach and prophesy, the change is nigh, you can't deny, the pressure's high. They can say what they like, can't make us listen to prophecies of rising seas, the desert spreading endlessly. They say we're sentencing our children's children, but no one knows what the future holds. You best get busy living for today. This is Truth Dick Radio. I'm Peter Shear, and I'm joined by Brandon Garrett, a professor of law at the University of Virginia and author of Convicting the Innocent, which the New York Times recently described as a gripping contribution to the lit literature of justice. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, just to set things up a bit, in your book, you examine the cases of 250 people who were wrongly convicted since the late 1980s. They spent an average of 13 years in prison. 
17 of them were sentenced to die and 80 to spend the rest of their lives in prison. And it's filled with lots of just really outrageous uh, facts and statistics. So how, how did this happen? Is How did the system put all of these people uh, in jail, some to die? So these people were all exonerated only because DNA testing came along in the late 80s, early 90s. Had it not been for DNA testing, they would have spent many more years in prison, and some of them likely would have been executed. So, you know, in some ways, these people were the lucky ones, and it's an optimistic story about errors getting corrected. But what's so disturbing about these cases is that it wasn't the criminal justice system really correcting these errors. It was the happenstance that DNA happened to be preserved in these cases. There have now been more than 250 people freed by DNA in the U.S. And what I wanted to do was to go back and try to figure out what went wrong. We've all seen news reports about these exonerations. I wanted to go back and get the original trial records, the confession statements, police reports if possible, to, to get a sense of, you know, why, why did jurors originally convict these innocent guys? What, what happened in these cases? And uh, what, what I saw when I reviewed those records was that, you know, if I had been a jury, a juror on one of these cases, I, I think I would have convicted too. The evidence at the time that the jury saw and almost all these cases did go to a trial, seemed powerful. And, and that's what makes these cases terrifying. The evidence was flawed. It was contaminated in all sorts of ways before trial. But what the, what the jury saw it was a case that seemed pretty open and shut. And I don't think anyone really thought much about these cases at the time. And so it, it makes you wonder how many other run-of-the-mill criminal cases there are out there, since, since DNA testing can't typically be done where the same mistakes might have happened. Well, I think that's what's so disturbing about, uh, you said, was it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is it 40 of these cases the, the, the convicted had confessed to crimes that they didn't commit and were put away? Yes, and so in each chapter of my book, I talk about a different type of evidence that contributed to these convictions, and then I look back and look at the road to exoneration and what happened afterwards. But I, I talk right away in the book about confessions because people just don't think that anyone would lightly confess to a crime they didn't commit. Right? The confession evidence is incredibly powerful before a jury for good reason. Well, we all know that, yes, yeah, sometimes we might not tell the truth over little things. But to confess to a serious crime, a murder, and it's typically in homicide cases where interrogations are conducted, right, it's hard to imagine how that would happen. You know, we, we all understand, sure, if, there is, if police are torturing us, right, we might confess mm-hmm. to something we didn't do. If there was physical force involved, sure. But these cases typically didn't involve that. They used the psychological techniques, and the detectives asked all sorts of questions. And uh, interrogations happened over many hours. They were long. Um, some of these people were juveniles and mentally retarded. Quite a few of them were. And, and maybe we could see how, okay, someone who is maybe more vulnerable might cave into police pressure. But even still, even given all that, these cases are even more surprising. Because I think, you know, we might figure, okay, if we were on a jury and we saw someone who was a juvenile who'd been interrogated for 30 hours, we might we might wonder. Or if it was someone who was mentally retarded, we might figure, okay, that someone like that might cave into the police. They may not really understand what's going on. But what prosecutors told the jury in these cases was, look, even in the cases where there was a juvenile or someone who was mentally limited, they said, you know this guy was telling the truth. Forget about the fact that he was disabled. Forget about the fact that it was a juvenile. Forget about the fact that this interrogation went on for days and days. This person gave facts that only the real killer could have known. Those details couldn't have been known by anyone. The police kept them out of the public. And this guy could tell you what color the victim's couch was and how many uh, cuts were made on the victim's body and how the victim was strangled, the, the kind of details that 
only the killer could have known. And so jurors thought, look, this is, this is an easy case to convict. This is a true confession. Right. And, and now we know that those details had to have come from the police, that these confessions were interrogated. But since there was no real record of what happened in the interrogation room, these were not recorded interrogations, or if they were, just the very end was recorded. There's no way for the jury to know who said what, really. And so it's just another example of how because we don't document interrogations carefully in this country, except in a growing number of jurisdictions that have responded to these false confession cases, there's just no way for the jury to assess what happened, who said what. And, and who said what is the crucial thing when you have these claims that, oh, someone volunteered the facts that only the killer could have known. Well, did they really volunteer them, or did the police feed those facts? And we can't know unless there's a recording. Another um, instance of, 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 of testimony that leads to sort of an open and shut case that you show is, is false and is really disturbing is bad forensics and bad forensics testimony. Can you jump into that? Sure, and I'm sure some of your listeners know there have been scandals around the country where different crime labs turn out to have poor quality control or analysts that were misreporting results. Uh, and... Uh, Unfortunately, we, we don't know today the scope of the problems at many of our crime labs because they still don't have quality control or good error checking. And even in response to some of these wrongful convictions, there just haven't been audits to check whether the analysts are getting it right. And uh, most of these cases that I looked at involved forensics. And that's sort of by definition. These are the cases where years later when the forensics improved and DNA testing could be done, DNA testing was done. But at the time of their trials, you know, basic forensics were done often on rape kits in cases involving a sexual assault. And hairs were compared, uh, bite prints were compared, fibers were compared, and basic ABO blood typing was done in these cases. Uh, and those techniques you'd think would be pretty straightforward. They don't involve a lot of fancy computers or programming or machines or equipment like in a DNA lab today. And the boundaries of some of those disciplines were clear. Everyone knows how, what percentage of the population has an A type or a B type or an O type or doesn't secrete any blood type. And yet you had these forensic analysts on the stand in these cases, and case after case, more than half the cases had some problem with the forensics, where the analysts misstated statistics, exaggerated the forensics, made the forensics that were totally inconclusive seem like they matched the, uh, the criminal defendant, basically tailoring their, t their, their case to the prosecution case, rather than just explaining the science in an accurate way. And it makes you wonder, you know, if these guys weren't trying to frame innocent defendants, were these forensic analysts testifying this way all the time? And what do they say in their reports? What do they say in cases that haven't had the kind of scrutiny that these cases have had, since we now know these guys were, were innocent? Uh, so it really calls into question the, the quality control in forensics. But still more disturbing, a lot of the techniques were used were unreliable techniques, where they were just simply errors. And they said that, you know, a dozen hairs match the defendant. We know now that in a dozen cases, they were, you know, in a dozen comparisons, they were wrong. And so, you know, how accurate are these techniques if, if they can mismatch evidence so easily based on their own subjective conclusion that two things look alike under a microscope? Can you talk about racial bias? How much is this a, a case of, uh, how much does this present itself in these wrongful convictions? Well, we certainly see a, a big racial disparity in these cases. Many more minorities mostly Africans and Hispanics, were among these 250 people exonerated by DNA than in the general population of people convicted of rape and murder in this country, which is a, itself, you know, skewed racially. So there's an even bigger racial skew in these cases. And what was also really interesting was that a lot of these cases involved minority, mostly African-American defendants and white victims in rape cases. 
and I don't know what explains that. Uh, it could be that uh, one explanation is simply just the way that rape cases get handled in this country. Maybe prosecutors took those cases more seriously or thought they would play better before a jury. Don't know. Another possibility is that eyewitness memory doesn't function as well when people are making cross-racial identifications. And uh, there have been a lot of studies on this. Some of these people even tried to bring that up in court to bring in experts to explain the jury that, look, eyewitness memory, just people have a harder time recognizing folks of the other race. Judges won't let them do that. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it's very disturbing, obviously, and it raises more questions about accuracy of cases outside of these handful of DNA cases that we, we know about. Uh, and uh, we just don't know what's causing this, this this race problem among the innocent. But it, it's yet another reason why, why these cases should really, really disturb us. It was on this day in 1964 that the House passed the historic Civil Rights Act, mandating that racism be made less obvious. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the bill into law just five months later. From this day forward, blacks shall still be treated unfairly, but it will be in more subtle, institutionalized ways. The bill was caused for momentous change, and across the nation, millions celebrated. The day is finally here. Uh, people can no longer blatantly deny us jobs because of the color of our skin. They have to actually pretend like they considered hiring us. Free at last, free at last. Thank God we're free at last. Except for a vast network of highly complicated systems that working hard to define ways, but undeniably put us at a disadvantage. It was the culmination of the fight of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, in his famous speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, said, I have a dream that things will more or less stay the same for the foreseeable future, but at least we can sort of pretend like things are getting better. Bigots won't feel as comfortable yelling racial slurs at us in public anymore, because yeesh, no one likes hearing those. Brooke. Yeah, it's stories like these that make me wonder what African Americans are complaining about these days. Thanks so much for reporting it, Tucker. Any chance I get to talk about Black History Month is an honor. When I was a kid, for Halloween, I dressed up as Harriet Tubman five years in a row. Right, you've mentioned that. She said her name was Harriet Tubman And she drove for the underground railroad I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month, or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
Brandon Garrett is a professor of law at the University of Virginia and author of Convicting the Innocent. You know, the, the United States throws more people in jail than any other country, and there are these problems, as you're describing, systemic problems that go to the core of evidence and uh, testimony. And, uh, you know, you, you point out in your book, uh, you, you seem to have an issue with the courts, and you would think that the courts would want to address, as you say, these well-publicized problems, but you say the Supreme Court has, has chosen not to hear about uh, these issues. You know, our, our, our criminal justice system is so fragmented, right? In any state, there are just maybe countless police departments, different local jurisdictions in which prosecutors are elected, uh, local judges. And so with a system that's divided into so many parts, it's really hard for the system to improve itself, even in response to, to really serious, serious miscarriages of justice. And so some states have tried to pass legislation to improve the way that lineups are done. Sometimes police departments, on a police department by police department basis, have, have responded and decided to videotape interrogations. But there's no way to get change across jurisdictions unless a state passes a law. And states are reluctant to tell police and prosecutors what to do, or unless the U.S. Supreme Court does it as a matter of constitutional law. And the Supreme Court doesn't issue constitutional rulings very often, and it hasn't revisited many of its criminal procedure rulings for, for decades. Uh, and in a lot of these areas, the Supreme Court sort of thinks of eyewitness evidence, confession evidence, forensics, as evidentiary issues for the state courts to handle, not questions of federal importance. And so you have these problems that fester for years and years and years with no one really accepting responsibility for an ongoing problem. Uh, you know, I, I do think there are some grounds for optimism. You do see, you know, I think last year, two dozen states introduced legislation to reform the way that lineups are done. A lot of the fixes to these problems are really inexpensive. It doesn't cost very much to just do a lineup right and have the person administering it be double-blind and not know who the suspect is and, and tell the eyewitness that. It doesn't cost very much to just turn on a video recorder and tape a, an interrogation. It doesn't cost much to have quality control in a forensic lab. You just need to have some random blind auditing to check their casework, just like any other laboratory would do. And so, you know, when you have cheap solutions and really expensive problems, you'd expect there to be just some common sense adoption of them, but just things happen so slowly in criminal justice. And uh, it's starting to happen. I hope it happens more. Um, what, is the, what is the argument, you know, is, would some people say this makes it harder to convict people who are guilty and puts criminals on the streets? Does that hold any water? There's some areas where that might hold water and where you're really worried about a trade-off. But here it's hard to see what the trade-off is. You know, in these cases, in more than 40% of these cases, the DNA tests not only freed the innocent, but they, but they identified the actual culprits. And so initially you had courts being hostile to requests for DNA testing. And that made no sense at all because those tests could identify the guilty person, as indeed they often did. And so, so finally, you know, a decade or so later, you have more and more state laws granting access to DNA testing and a growing recognition that, look, DNA testing is good for finding the guilty and freeing the innocent. But even that took some time. And the same is true for forensics. You can have people who are freed. And indeed, in some of these cases, the guilty initially went free because forensic analysts made mistakes. And so, you know, accurate forensic work certainly helps to identify the guilty, and it can also free the innocent. Same with eyewitness IDs. Uh, you have bad lineups often 
maybe in a, a third of the cases from the few archival studies that have been done, where eyewitnesses identify fillers in the lineup. That's a that's a false identification. It doesn't lead to a wrongful conviction usually. Police know that, that look that was a filler, a mistake was made. But that damages the credibility of the eyewitness and they may not the police may not want to go forward with that person if they can't make an identification. And that's the kind of situation where crimes may go unsolved because of poorly constructed lineups. And finally, police departments that have adopted videotaping of interrogations have uniformly said this is the best thing that ever happened to us because you don't get these frivolous challenges where people say that they were manhandled by the police or they were coerced, and then you review the tape and find out that no, they, they volunteered the facts and, and the interrogation was done professionally. So all these changes are the kinds of things that create more accurate evidence that everyone can benefit from. I think it's just inertia and the fragmentation of our system and basically just lack of attention to problems of criminal justice that have let these problems fester for so long. Let me just ask you before we run out of time, is there a case in particular that really bothers you? There are so many cases that really bother me. A recent Supreme Court decision from this last term is, is, is just the latest, this Connick versus Thompson case that people may have seen reports of in the news where the Supreme Court said that uh, the prosecutor's office shouldn't be held responsible civilly for repeat violations of Brady where evidence of innocence was kept from the defense. And there, one of the pieces of evidence was a forensic report showing that the defendant didn't have the blood type uh, of the evidence from the crime scene. Powerful evidence of innocence. The prosecutors knowingly withheld it from the defense. An unfair trial resulted. A wrongful conviction resulted. John Thompson, in that case, spent more than a dozen years in prison, including some on death row for a crime he didn't commit. The Supreme Court says, well, but the office shouldn't be held responsible for not training its prosecutors because they're lawyers. This stuff should be obvious to them, which is just bizarre reasoning. How are you going to have accountability uh, when mistakes do happen and worse, when misconduct happens, if the office isn't held accountable and if prosecutors are individually immune, right, where no one is, is held accountable later on and where most violations never get detected? That's the unusual case where it came to light that they had hidden evidence of innocence. You know, if evidence gets hidden, it may, get, it may stay hidden, and no one may ever know that prosecutorial misconduct occurred. But if there are no repercussions when it is detected, then, then how can we expect to have a, an accurate system? So, you know, someone needs to be held accountable. And, and, and that's why that's just the, the latest infuriating decision that, that has uh, come down even since the book was published. Brandon Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Brandon Garrett is a professor of law at the University of Virginia and author of Convicting the Innocent. The Lord knows that this world is cruel and ain't the Lord no just a fool and a loving somebody don't make them love you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
It's rare when a governor takes a courageous stand on the death penalty, but Oregon's governor, John Kitzhaber, just announced this week that he won't allow the state to put anyone to death again while he's in office. His decision spares the life of a convicted double murderer who is set to be executed by lethal injection in the next two weeks. Said Kitzhaber, I simply cannot participate once again in something that I believe to be morally wrong. Kitzhaber was governor in the 1990s when Oregon executed two prisoners, and that experience has evidently been gnawing away at him. He called the death penalty compromised and inequitable and said it's time for this state to consider a different approach. By taking this stand, Kitzhaber joins former Illinois Governor George Ryan and former New Mexico Governor Tony Anaya in unplugging the machinery of death when they had the opportunity to do so. Too often, governors refuse to do this. Some, like George W. Bush and Rick Perry, seem to relish in playing God or the Grim Reaper. But Kitzhaber, a medical doctor who takes seriously his oath to do no harm, could no longer abide getting needless blood on his hands. He deserves our thanks on this Thanksgiving weekend. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. important story. 57-year-old Michael Morton from Texas has been freed after serving 25 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. He was convicted of killing his wife. It turns out that new DNA evidence actually indicates that he did not kill his wife. Another man uh, was found guilty of doing that. Uh, so he was just freed and right now the state is trying to decide whether or not they want to pay him money for it. He could receive up to $2 million and I hope he does because he's been in jail for 25 years and probably doesn't have uh, much going on in the outside world. so Yeah, um, he didn't exactly get a chance to develop a career. Yeah. Uh, and so apparently the standard compensation in these cases is $80,000 a year. Since he's been in prison for 25 years, that comes out to around $2 million. And, you know, it, that, that's very logical. 25 years of your life to be absolutely ruined, uh, 80000 a year doesn't sound like a lot to me. It, it sounds like it's at least the right amount. Right. I completely agree with you. When you break it down to $80,000 a year, I don't think it's nearly enough at all. I mean, the amount of time he spent in prison, 25 years, that's more than a quarter of his life behind bars for a crime he did not commit. He'll and, never get those years back. And remember, of course, all the other things that go along with it, all of his neighbors, family, etc., that were told over and over in the press, this guy's guilty, he killed his wife, etc. Now, it turns out they had terrible evidence on him, as usual, right? So his son was there and said, it wasn't my dad, it was somebody else that seems like you know it's not that's not to say that that's the only evidence because the son might be covering for him etc but that's a pretty important piece of evidence and uh and uh what else was there well i, I think an important aspect of the story is the district attorney at the time right. by the name of john bradley so john bradley has been a, a topic of discussion in texas for a while now uh, because of the fact that he was known for hiding important evidence when it came to the cases so in this particular case um, he basically suspended evidence indicating that his son said that his father was not the person who committed the crime and also they had found that somebody else had spent uh... had gotten the credit cards of the wife and spent some money on those so that gives you an excellent sense that there was a robbery 
and you know the person who actually spent her money. Which if you're a cop or you're a prosecutor, you should immediately investigate that. I would think, well, there's an excellent chance that that's the guy who did it, right? Mm -hmm. But all that gets covered up. And many years later, through DNA testing, which they did not have back when he was first convicted, they find uh, that the bandana that was found nearby did have his wife's blood and the DNA of a guy who had done a very similar crime. Turns out that's the guy, uh, another similar crime, that's the guy who actually did it. And there was no DNA of the husband there uh, in that crime scene on the bandana or otherwise. Right. So he's finally cleared. And then I love his quote. He said, quote, I thank God this wasn't a capital case, that I only had life because I gave these, it gave these saints here at the Innocence Project time to do this. The Innocence Project is the one that goes around testing DNA to make sure we got the right guy. In this case, again, thank God he wasn't executed. He could have been. It is Texas. And, uh, yeah. and, and we were able to correct this mistake. Several months ago, I reported on the firing of a trio of high-ranking prison officials in connection with a series of sexual assaults in a southwestern Pennsylvania prison. Few news agencies took up the story, especially national ones. This was astounding, given the nature of the charges. Prison guards, both raping men and forcing others to sexually assault others on their very whim. Prison administrators turning a collective blind eye is this not news? Since that initial report, one prison guard, Harry Nicoletti, has been arrested and faces over 90, 90 charges stemming from these events. According to the local DA, 11 other guards will be arrested on similar charges soon. When news first broke of the scandal, it forced some observers to recall ex-president George W. Bush, who, after the rise of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal in Iraq, pointed to Saddam Hussein's usage of the prison and particularly made note of his rape rooms. Well, once again, Americans have gone one better, from rape rooms to rape blocks. In the prison known as State Correctional Institution at Pittsburgh, those convicted of sex crimes were targeted for beatings, rapes, or both, sometimes by prisoners, sometimes by guards, sometimes by both. Boy, talk about corrections. Some men filed institutional grievances or prison complaints, which were invariably dismissed or simply ignored. Others tried to file actions in court, where most fell into black holes. It is worthy to note that this year marks the 40th anniversary of the notorious and vicious slaughter at Attica, a maximum security prison in upstate New York. Attica was supposed to be the bellwether of change to American corrections, but if anything, it shows the limits of liberal reforms, which can be washed away in another season. Limits were promised by liberal politicians. Years later, neoliberals would push for more repressive laws that shuttered courtrooms and made civil suits an obstacle course.
joined with conservatives to build the prison industrial complex into the monster that it is today. In many ways, they made the scandals which we see today and the rape blocks possible. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. It's a beautiful world I see Everything's differently It's a beautiful world I see Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up to date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How can we cover everything? We cover eight to ten stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Everything's differently. It's a beautiful world. I see. ACLU has put forward a very interesting report called A Call to Courage Reclaiming Our Liberties 10 Years After 9 11. And they are asking for courage in dealing with uh, the civil liberties issues to say, hey, you know what? We shouldn't be so afraid of terrorists that we take away precious American liberties, rights, and freedoms. And unfortunately, the Obama administration has not done very well on that count. Well, let me give you two things that they actually repealed from uh, the Bush administration, which is good, of course. One, they stopped torture. And uh, second of all, they stopped extraordinary renditions. Now, let's pause for a second and recognize that by the time that Obama got into office, torture had already been stopped. Now, might they have picked it up again if a Republican won? It's possible, although John McCain, his opponent, was also not in favor of torture. Uh, so he simply, again, continued the policy of no longer torturing, right? And second of all, uh, they also uh, had stopped extraordinary renditions and uh, stopped the CIA black sites by the time Obama got into office. So he didn't actually change any of those things. He continued the policies of stopping those programs. But I'll take what I can do. But what is currently in use is... Indefinite detention, targeted killing, trial by military commissions, warrantless surveillance, and racial profile. All of which is absolutely disastrous. Why in the world has he continued those programs? And in fact, when it comes to targeted killing, he stepped up the program. And targeted killing is unbelievable. Do you know what it is? It gives the president the right to assassinate any United States citizen as long as he deems them to be a terrorist. No trial, no due process. They have to be abroad, okay? Uh, but if, they're, if they make the mistake of being abroad, well, well, too bad. Now, look, remember how many people we picked up and did the extraordinary renditions, otherwise known as kidnappings, and how many people we tortured, and then, oops, later we found out they were totally innocent. So, I mean, out of dozens of examples, there was a guy in Canada, we, oh, sorry, we got the wrong guy. There was a guy from Germany that we picked up, tortured for months, and then dropped off in Eastern Europe saying, whoops, turns out there was a guy who had a similar name as you. Of course, do you know how many Muslim names are similar? Now, okay, that's just kidnapping and torture. What happens when we kill the wrong guy? When we execute him and go, well, oops, I guess we shouldn't have executed that U.S. citizen. Oh, well, our bad. 
Uh, now, on the issue of torture, you know, something that the Obama supporters quite often brag about, uh, there's a second problem. One, it had already been stopped. Two, actually some people say that there's still torture by proxy going on where we hand off uh, people to other countries and then just don't look the other way while they torture them. But let's get even beyond that and go to the third problem, which is that no one has been prosecuted. So which means that it just has become eh, political differences. It's not a crime anymore to torture people. In fact, the ACLU report says, quote, not a single victim of the Bush administration's torture regime has had his day in court. And not a single court that was faced with a torture suit has addressed the core question of whether the victim's legal rights were violated. So if nobody ever went to trial and there was never a ruling that torture isn't legal, well, then it's just a political difference of opinion. Next time a Republican comes in, they can just go ahead and resume it. That is part of the problem of normalizing the things that were radical. That's why it's a crazy idea to not look backward and only look forward, especially in the area of prosecution. Because the whole idea of prosecution is to look back at what crimes you committed. So now on the issue of racial profiling, you must think, well, President Obama's administration can't be doing that, right? Well, listen to the ACLU report. No area of American Muslim civil society was left untouched by discriminatory and illegitimate government action during the Bush years. In short, the Bush administration used religious, racial, and national origin profiling as one of this nation's primary domestic counterterrorism tools. Now, that's the Bush administration. They were horrible. They did everything you can imagine as you see there. How about the Obama administration? Here's what the ACLU goes on to say. To an alarming extent, the Obama administration has continued to embrace profiling as official government policy. And it's not just different racial groups that are infiltrated. It, with our surveillance programs, we are infiltrating all sorts of political groups. And what the ACLU, ACLU report does is, by the way, it's not their opinion. They're showing you facts. This is a program that continues, that is acknowledged. Uh, that it, things that we have discovered either through leaks or through the government saying yes we're doing that what they're doing is instead of looking in on terrorists they're looking on against political opponents and whether it was the bush administration or the obama administration nine out of ten times it winds up people being on the left so people are questioning authority or uh, the establishment Here's uh, another part of the report. They say, quote, the government has spied on racial and religious minority groups and community organizations, college groups, military reservists calling home to their families, journalists, aid workers, political activists, and many others. This is exactly what our government was not supposed to do. This is exactly what is the opposite of what America stands for. We're not supposed to go in and spy on political groups and try to crush them. And it's all under the guise of fighting an eternal war on terrorism. It's become like 1984. And why is the Obama administration going after not only racial and religious groups, but against community organizers? Barack Obama was a community organizer, but I guess those days are long gone. Now he's part of the establishment that thinks, hey, you know what? Continuing programs where we crush American civil liberties and sometimes even making them worse with the targeted killing programs that have been expanded is the new Barack Obama, the one that loves the establishment and apparently loves the civil liberties abuses 
that the Bush administration started and he campaigned against, but is completely supported as president. It's the day after 9-11, time to look with clear eyes at what has become of our country over the past 10 years. Let's face facts. We're not the same nation we were 10 years ago. We're less free at home. We're more lawless overseas. Thanks to the USA Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the expanded powers Congress granted to the NSA, and the militarization of law enforcement, our First Amendment rights and our Fourth Amendment rights have taken a big hit. And overseas, our nation's reputation has taken a big hit, too. Bush and Cheney's travels to the dark side with their sadistic endorsement of torture disgraced the country. To his credit, Barack Obama came out strongly against torture, including waterboarding, but he seems to be allowing just about everything short of waterboarding. And he's also continued the illegal Bush policy of kidnapping people and sending them to prison overseas and denying them due process. And the Obama administration has baldly asserted the authority to assassinate people, including U.S. citizens. Obama risks turning the White House into the Corleone compound. So this is where we are, less free, more lawless. And this is what we must do, resist. Resist the trampling of our freedoms. Resist the law-breaking and the morality-breaking that's being done in our name. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Nation, it's hard to believe, but this Sunday is the 10th anniversary of September 11th attacks, which means we can't be more than five years away from finding Saddam's WMDs. <laughs> Since that tragic day, the American government has done whatever is necessary to safeguard the homeland, from enhanced interrogation to inventing the phrase the homeland. <laughs> we even tried to find common ground with Muslim extremists by electing one of them president. <laughs> over and over, over and over, this man has proven that he is not serious about keeping us safe. Which brings us to my new segment, This Week in National Sicowardy.
Folks, whenever the terrorists have come up with a new way to attack air travel, the TSA has found new and innovative ways to overreact. So travelers can then relax and enjoy their two-foot-by-two-foot two space next to a crying baby in a pressurized tube hurtling 40,000 feet in the air. But all that security is about to disappear thanks to Homeland Security Chief Janet Napolitano. We hope that we will be able to uh, make it easier for travelers. Uh, you won't have to take off uh, so much, uh, your shoes, your belt, and everything as you go through the, the machines. Uh, what? <laughs> if we don't take our shoes off, how will we know which little piggy went wee, wee, wee all the way to an Al-Qaeda training camp? <laughs> Has Napolitano forgotten about the shoe bomber? He's not just an isolated nut job. All terrorists have worn shoes at some point. That's why it's called Sharia law. And thanks to our vigilance up till now, America hasn't suffered another footwear-related act of war, except for Jimmy Choo's fall 2011 patent leather sandal pump, which declared a jihad on our notions of open-toed elegance. And folks, it only gets worse because Obama's TSA is abandoning our most effective weapon against terror, x-raying your junk. Jim? Fort Wayne is one of 40 airports in the country getting a technology upgrade for its body scanner. The new software changes two things. First, what the scanned image looks like. This is the old one. It shows a rendering of the person's actual body along with any anomalies. This is the new one. Everyone's body is the generic rendering and anomalies like something in your pocket show up as a yellow block. Great. This will protect us if we get attacked by the gingerbread man. <laughs> the key tool, folks, the key tool in our national security portfolio is ghostly images of our peepees. <laughs> it is easy for terrorists to disguise their facial features, but everyone knows there is no disguising your crotch face. <laughs> Every genital is as unique as a snowflake. Side note, if your genitals are shaped like a snowflake, See a doctor immediately. <laughs> now folks, without forcing us, without forcing us to take off our shoes and undergo full body scans, what is to stop a terrorist from boarding a plane wearing a shoe bomb on his wang? <laughs> Damn. That guy's wearing a size 13. <laughs> what is next? Letting people through security with four ounces of shampoo? The terrorists will be able to rinse and repeat. <laughs> Folks, in light of Obama's lax security standards, I am now calling on all passengers to prove that you are sane, unthreatening travelers by doing what I do. Getting completely naked in the airport security line and invite anyone in uniform to probe you with a rubber glove. And again, I want to extend my court-ordered apologies to the counter staff at Cinnabon. Nation, that frosting is hot. Nation, and they are very generous with it. Nation, God, I hope that. I hope, I hope that was frosting.
lady said she didn't like the smell of it And then took her clothes off in a restaurant for the hell of it I met a DJ who lived in seclusion Reality and sobriety were her only delusions And those lucky bastards, they didn't have to work <clears throat> Big 3D billboards and big 30-foot smurfs to do with a 95-year-old leukemia patient who uh, was traveling from Florida to Michigan and uh, she had to wear an adult diaper. Now while she was going through security, the TSA pulled her aside and thought it was a little strange that she was wearing a diaper. They said that it was uh, both firm and wet. So they took her to a private room uh, with her daughter and forced her to take her diaper off. Okay, um, she, she did not have another diaper, but they said that they wanted to examine the diaper to make sure that everything was okay before she could go through and board the plane. All right, now I will do the only defense of the TSA in the country in regards to this story. First of all, if you're going to go with a suicide bomber, a 95-year-old makes sense. That ain't right. Are you that ain't right. Oh, you're the okay. worst. That was the worst joke <laughs> no, ever called in TYTSP. All right, but second of all, okay, you know, the TSA, you got to give them credit on this. If you said to me, check that 95-year-old's diaper because I find it firm and wet, not going to do it. Can't do it. Can't play with it. Can't win with it, right? But apparently they thought it was serious enough that they went ahead and did that. So, I mean, they're... They're overdoing their jobs, obviously, right? But it's not like they were having fun with it, right? So that is my only mild defense of them. Now, having said that, was that the right idea? Come on. Of course not. Come on. Give me a break. No, I couldn't agree with you more, Jenk. And to be honest with you, even your mild defense was a little, a little maddening. I know that you agree that, you know, what they did was wrong. But come on, pulling a 95-year-old leukemia patient into a private room, forcing her to take her diaper off so you can examine it, we need to calm down a little bit, okay? The TSA has gone too far. You know, there was a story a few months ago where they're patting down a six-year-old. By the way, um, they received so much criticism for that that they have actually stepped back and they said, look, we will only do those advanced pat-downs on minors uh, unless you know it's a very serious situation and they're extremely um, suspicious and we're going to you know scale back all of these crazy security methods but this is just ridiculous and I'm glad that all of these stories get as much media attention as they do because the TSA can't do this to us every single time we decide we want to travel yeah no seriously I had forgotten that she had leukemia that just takes the story from you know bad to horrible right uh, and uh, congratulations, Anna. Way to make me feel bad about joking about it in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Good. Mission accomplished. Good. Nicely done. <laughs> well, all right. Now, having said that, look, guys, this is partly how uh, Al-Qaeda has terrorized us. That we're checking the diapers of 95-year-olds and we're patting down six-year-olds. This is crazy, you know? It, even their failed bomb attempts, like the shoe bomber, has been in some sense, unfortunately, an incredible success. Because it's caused a pain in the ass to millions upon millions of Americans for now an enormous number of years. How long are we going to go doing this? Checking everybody's shoes and diapers, etc. So, look, I want us to be incredibly careful. But I don't want us to be stupid and senseless. We've got to find a better balance than, than we have now. Yeah.
I mean, pretty soon they're going to be doing like anal probes to make sure we're not hiding things up there. This is, I think it's way too extreme. Well, yeah, well, that's that's the thing. It, I guess, yes, it does need to be a happy medium. But the problem is that, you know, if we go too far and say, I can't believe, you know, we're so overreacting. I can't believe we can't do anything. All we're doing is trying to travel. Then if something goes down, everybody's going to say, why wasn't the TSA doing their job? How did that guy get through with that? They should have patted him down. You know, they patted down a 90-year-old lady, but they let this guy through. It's just they're never going to win. Mm -hmm. Is bottom line because if something goes down, we're going to criticize them not for being criticize them for not being more stringent with the rules, you know. So it's it's hard to it's hard to get the balance. But when you do stuff like this, it makes people want to go further the wrong way, and then they have to back up so much they can let someone that has that actually is dangerous through. I see what you're saying, but isn't the whole purpose of those body scanners and you know of the advanced pat downs to avoid situations like this? Like, okay, you do the pat down and you notice that a diaper is wet and firm. Which, by the way, diapers are supposed to be wet and firm. That's what they're there for, right? So you have her go through the technology that's created to scan through the body and make sure she doesn't have a bomb or she doesn't have any type of weapon hidden in her wet and firm diaper. But I. I don't, Please, I, I've been trying. I've been trying to resist wet and firm jokes this whole story. Okay, you're pushing me to the edge. Please, can we move on? This is your moment of clarity. You can't protect everybody from every danger, yet we seem willing to give away our privacy to allow for government monitoring of phones, emails, letters and singing telegrams, and we never complain, all in the name of safety. We're fine with the possibility of harm from certain things. Car kills, cars kill more people than almost anything. Cigarettes and beer, I think, have killed a few people, if I have that stat right. And fast food shortens the life of our kids, or at least ruins their turn on the seesaw the chin-up bar, and yet we have an understanding that we're okay with those risks, with that kind of death. We're willing to take those risks in order to drive a car, drink a beer, eat a regurgitated chicken paste flavored barbecue mesquite nugget ball. We're willing to take those risks. So why give away our right to not go to third base with a TSA agent whom you just met? Because, fellas, no means no, unless you're a TSA agent, and then no means follow us to a room with fewer windows. We deserve privacy. You should be able to talk on the phone with no outside parties listening. You should be able to send that Facebook message of your junk without anyone else downloading it. If you're into erotic puppeteering, then you should be able to watch that YouTube video without an FBI agent giggling to himself in a dark room in Quantico, Virginia. Whatever a consenting adult does with a consenting puppet of a grumpy macaque monkey is their business as long as that puppet is of age and the love friction created during the session doesn't start a fire. 
You see, the forefathers had the wisdom to declare that the government did not have the right to stay in people's houses. My bet is they did that not only because the British always reeked of scones and crumpets and wouldn't stop playing the fife and drums even when Bonanza was playing on the 18th century television made from burlap and smallpox. I bet they also made that law because they felt the government didn't have the right to watch everything you do. Some of the frontiersmen probably enjoyed an occasional naked frolic around the Maypole and didn't want the government officials snickering about it. My point is, you can't protect everybody from everything all of the time. Some people are going to die. Some people are going to get broken legs. Some people are going to get their nipples caught in a puppet's mouth. We shouldn't give away our privacy to try and stop every one of these things from ever happening. Life doesn't happen behind plexiglass. My name is Brian Ingram. I live in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have an Occupy Fort Worth movement here. Um, I was with them in spirit for the longest while, for the, for the month that they established themselves, until I was watching on the news and um, the internet, YouTube mainly, about watching young women, older women, pregnant women getting maced and beaten. And that, that motivated me to just to stand up and stand with my occupiers. Um, I, I should let you know that I'm also a teacher and I, I teach social studies and I also have a seven-year-old boy and it, it felt kind of hypocritical for me to, to talk about our country's founding, our country's Bill of Rights, and look my boy in the eye and passively accept my fellow Americans getting beaten, maced, treated horribly, spat upon, rounded up. It, it was unconscionable for me, and, and I felt the need to do something about it. What, what people fail to realize is, is that if opposing armies unleash tear gas on each other, that's called chemical warfare. But, our, but, to, but to do it on our own citizens is crowd control. And, and so I'm... I'm been with my fellow occupiers. I can't do much. Like I said, I've got a, a kiddo, I've got a home, a career, but I can take them food, I can buy them supplies, I can do what I need to do to materially maintain them. But the, the constant call to action that I, I keep hearing at the end of your podcast has motivated me to um, occupy Congress myself. I'm, I'm going to file the necessary paperwork to run as an independent for U.S. House of Representatives and it was kind of telling me that I looked up how to do that because the window to do that closes December 12th in my district. I'm going to run as an independent because I think both parties have failed us. One is more guilty than the other, but, you know, again, living in Texas, my, my chances of it to at least win are greatly diminished if I choose a, a political party. So I'll be running as an independent, and the more I judge, the, the, the more I realize that, the, that just how much the... the the game is rigged for political parties. I have to collect 500 signatures from people who did not vote in the primary, in, in, the, in, the, in the general primaries. That's going to be hard to do because I have to ask each person and, and notify them that before they sign this, I have to 
they have to understand that they couldn't have voted in a primary election, and uh, I'll have to say that at least 500 times before I can get enough petitions, enough signatures on a petition to put my name on a ballot. So I've got a long road to hoe. Um, I'll be doing that shortly, and if we mean what we say and we occupy Congress, I'm sure there are several people trying to get on, that, that could get on their ballot as an independent and bring these, these games to a halt to change the debate, to change the, the discussion, to talk about real people, you and me, the other 99%. Anyway, I want to give you my, my thumbs up and my continued appreciation for your podcast. You are, you've been an inspiration and your, uh, the, the people that you have on are a great mix. And I want to also thank you for bringing on Lee Camp. I found his website, and if I ever need a laugh, while at the same time getting pissed off, I I will turn I will watch his YouTube channel. Um, again, thanks, thank you, and I I hope we continue to stay strong. Take care. Bye. Hey Jay, this is Todd from a formerly occupied Los Angeles. Raid just happened this morning. And, um, you know, uh, we were down there the, the other night and, uh, we made the police back off and that, that felt great. And I guess, you know, we felt this, you know, coming. It's, you know, sad. It's been extremely comforting to me that when, uh, you know, I don't live in downtown Los Angeles, but when I'm out, you know, in my neighborhood and stuff like that and I see a homeless person and they ask me for change, you know, I can tell them, you know, hey, Give them some change and say, hey, also, why don't you hop on the, the Venice bus down to the occupation and you will get food and water. You need to talk to somebody. Somebody is there to listen. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm sad that that's the location, at least for now, it is, um, is gone. We will be back. I just got done listening to your eighth installment on the occupation, and I, I want to echo the other callers who... We're really appreciative of, of your coverage, you know, and I, and I love hearing the callers calling in from, you know, like Love It Texas, saying that they're bringing down pizza to the people, which is a very great point. I've called and said, you know, the people need water. One of the things that a lot of local health ordinances don't allow occupiers, if you have an occupation remaining, to actually prepare any food there. So pizzas and things that are prepared or things that they can just heat up with hot water are perfect, and I totally encourage people to do that. I also love your other caller's idea of the slogan, not one dime. You know, I think that draws a line in the sand and, you know, boils down to the very bare essence, one of the central tenets of what has been bringing me down time and time again to an occupation. So we're a little down today, but we're not out. We will come back. We will disrupt all city services. We will disrupt all city business. We will disrupt commerce. The people united will never be defeated. Thanks again.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today I wanted to build on top of the uh, commentary I had in the last episode in which I was answering the question of how to respond to questions about Occupy Wall Street and you know what, what's their point, what, what do they hope to achieve, that sort of thing. So to answer the question about Occupy Wall Street that is assuming that they need to have a goal in order to be successful, so they ask, so you know, what is their goal, what is their plan, what do they hope to achieve, um, I, I made a comparison to the Industrial Revolution. So you, know, you can ask yourself and you can even respond to the person asking you this question and ask them, who orchestrated the Industrial Revolution? who, you know, it was a massive world-changing event that fundamentally changed the way essentially everything was done because of a a massive amount of invention and technological advancement that that really fundamentally changed the way people live. So because it was such such a big, you know, well, we call it a revolution for a reason. It was such a big revolution that it must have been orchestrated. You you have to plan something like that, right? Well, clearly, the answer is actually no. No one planned the Industrial Revolution. It was a series of inventions and good ideas that uh, were, you know, brought into existence by smart people who had thoughts, took actions, uh, you know, took risks, and then their actions were built upon by others who then took those ideas further and changed them in their own way and on and on. And it is an infinitely tangled web of interaction between innumerable people who together collectively created uh, what we refer to as the Industrial Revolution. And yet no one in that web of interaction planned a revolution. They were all acting independently, you know, trying to make their lives better or easier or, you know, whatever through their small contribution. But they they didn't have a long-term plan for how their actions would affect the world as a whole. And yet, collectively, they did. So my answer, again, about Occupy Wall Street is that no individual, part of the movement, needs to have a plan for how their actions will affect change later. They just have to know that taking action has the chance to make change. It often takes a thousand sparks before you finally start a fire, but if you keep sending metaphorical sparks over and over and over, eventually it'll catch. And that is effectively what has happened with Occupy Wall Street. It's not like protesting is a new idea, and it's not like there weren't a thousand or more protests that happened that effectively went nowhere in, in, in recent years and in recent decades. But something happened with Occupy Wall Street that made it catch fire. So now that it's here, it's our job to fan it and encourage it and you know work with it, add your own creativity to it, draw your own ideas from it, and, and you know, be part of the collective that moves the movement forward in such a way that we hope will create positive change, even if you don't know how exactly we'll get from here to there. And as I said in the last show, we're not moving to a point, we're moving towards a horizon. So I say that as long as the movement is, is headed in the direction of positive change, it should be considered a success. 
So that's going to be it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple members before I go. A couple more members from 2010. Lee W. signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on May 16th. And Martin W. signed up for a, also a leftist yearly membership on June 16th, both of 2010. Both have stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Lee and Martin and all the members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys, as I know you know already. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word about individual clips that you uh, particularly enjoy through your social networks or by email or however you like. Details on that are all in the show notes. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, oh, oh.